Hello and welcome to this ACE Oncocast, recorded in Budapest on the occasion of the European Multidisciplinary Congress on Neurological Cancers. This podcast series is entitled Expert Review, Immunotherapy in Neurothelial Cancer, When, Why and How. My name is Rob Cowan and I'm a medical oncologist at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom and I'm delighted to be joined today by two leading urothelial cancer experts, Dr. Tom Poles from the St. Bart's Cancer Centre London and Dr. Aristotelis Bamias from the University of Athens in Greece. Welcome to both of you and thank you for joining me today. In today's ASONCOCAST, our clinical experts will be discussing first-line and maintenance treatments for metastatic disease. Um, Aris, we've seen really quite dramatic changes in the management of uh, first-line management of urothelial cancers, not least the introduction over recent times of maintenance uh, therapy uh, with abelumab. Perhaps you could just start by telling us about the evidence base for that, the Javelin 100 study, and uh, kind of how it's changing practice. Yes, um, <clears throat> I think thanks to Tom's work, uh, he's the uh, first author in this um, paper. We have a meaningful way of adapting immunotherapy in first-line setting in urothelial cancer. We tried over the years, of the recent years, and it seems that the concurrent administration is not the way forward. We don't know why, but the data tells us so. But maintenance therapy indeed produced um, amazing results. Um, for the first time, median overall survival in this population, uh, I remind that this was a mixed population of cisplatin and carboplatin treated patients with a median overall survival of about two years. That was amazing. So I certainly adopted this in my practice and I think that most people in the world have adopted uh, Avelumab maintenance therapy in the first line after platinum-based chemotherapy. And Tom, since your original publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, I know there have been some updates, there have been some further analyses. What have those told us about the durability of the results and maybe some interesting subsets that have emerged? Um, well, it's been a, a huge team effort and a lot of people have been involved in the, in the process. Um, and um, I think that the journey with that publication continues because it continues to be the only positive randomised phase three in the frontline setting with an oval survival signal. Um, I think that the results remain consistent and there have been publications over the last six months showing that as we go a further follow-up, three years follow-up, further follow-up, we haven't got to five years yet, we can still show a significant survival benefit associated with maintenance of Alimab. The principle remains very simple, which is that um, second-line immunotherapy is too late for most patients. Many patients don't get... I was in clinic on Thursday or last week, 
And I saw two patients who didn't get maintenance value for various reasons, and they've come in with rapidly progressive liver metastasis, and they're just not well enough. And one of them's got urosepsis and is stuck in hospital, and we try to transfer them across for second-line immune therapy. That's not going to work. So you have to, if you're going to use immune therapy, waiting for the cancer to come back is too late. And the problem with frontline immune therapy is we just know it probably only really helps a relatively modest number of patients significantly. It's not good enough at getting control of the disease. Chemotherapy is really good at getting control of the disease. So it's optimising those two approaches. It's what Ari said, the combination, for whatever reason we don't know yet why, doesn't seem to be great together, so we sequence the drugs. And that's why the maintenance of Alimab trial is positive, in my opinion. And as time goes by, we show those results remain consistent. And that's because the underlying biology, the principle of what we said, remains true to this day. A lot of patients on the trial have got subsequent therapy. In fact, of those that's progressed, it's over 70%. But... Starting therapy that late is also difficult because patients who have, with rapidly progressive liver metastasis, we know immune therapy is not good for that. If you can get control with chemotherapy, you create a longer runway for the immune therapy to work. And that allows more patients to get benefit. Now, of course, we haven't um, cured <laughs> bladder cancer yet. We, I hope we're going to do that in the not too distant future. Um, and we haven't developed fantastic biomarkers, but there has been some biomarker work from that program um, and Craig Davis, who's, um, uh, uh, who's the scientist behind that work, and, and the group from Pfizer, has done, I think, a terrific job. Um, and what essentially they've looked at now is tertiary lymphoid structures. They've looked at epigenetic biomarkers, circulating epigenetic biomarkers correlating with outcome. There's also been work looking at gene mutational burden and other parameters. And I think what we can now establish, and I think... The Javelin trial has done that most successfully because it's against placebo, which makes you really enables you to look at predictive factors more mm-hmm. successfully. If you do a randomized trial against chemotherapy, you never know what the response rate, the biomarkers of the chemotherapy are. If you're against placebo, I think it's easier to look for genuinely predictive biomarkers. And I think what that work is showing most conclusively is both innate and adaptive immunity is really important in predicting response. And they're also stromal and angiogenic factors which can predispose to resistance. So the principle of response is much more complicated than pd one expression, and I think that um, trial has demonstrated that nicely. And is it still the case that essentially all subsets benefit from this maintenance approach, or, or have there been any divergence with further follow So I don't think everyone benefits from immune therapy, but um, I think that we're still in a position where um, we, um, we have subgroups which... Um, aren't responsive to immune therapy. But the subset analysis of those included in the trial, GEM-CIS or GEM-CARBO, doesn't matter what type of chemotherapy, liver metastasis, no liver metastasis, doesn't matter the sites of metastasis, the number of cycles of chemotherapy doesn't seem to make any difference. Um, the site, primary site of the disease, upper tract or bladder cancer, doesn't seem to make any difference. So all of the clinical subsets seem to benefit. Um, and that's, again, because the principle is simple. If you're in control of the cancer, uh, which is the principle of the trial. The one group that wasn't included in the trial were those patients with progressive disease. You had to have a response or stable disease on chemotherapy to receive maintenance therapy. And I don't think patients with progressive disease with liver metastasis actually benefit very much from subsequent immune therapy anyway when they're really getting control what of What proportion patient. is that that progress? About 25%. Okay, so this is a treatment for 75% roughly. Yeah, of yeah right. I mean, some patients can't have immune therapy because of... Contraindications, but you and one of the debates around this issue, which I 
really interested in is do you need to give the six cycles of chemotherapy? Because actually we know from previous work that quite a few patients are progressing between cycle three and cycle six. And indeed there's a randomized trial comparing three and six cycles of chemotherapy followed by maintenance of Alimab in France, the UK and Spain. It's an investigator-initiated trial. Um, Johan Lorio and Enrique Grande involved in that study. A terrific, um, I think, um, idea to try and redefine how much chemotherapy we need. In the trial, we allowed four, five, or six cycles. And in fact, quite a large proportion of patients only receive four cycles. Six is still the standard of care. But for those patients who are coming into harm's way, you know, struggling, delays with chemotherapy, dose reductions, having to switch from gem cyst to gem carbo, those sorts of patients, neutropenic sepsis on cycle five and cycle six, instead of long protracted delays, which I think is associated with progression, I think you're better off cropping the chemotherapy and starting maintenance of Alimab. And from a practical point of view, Aris, in terms of duration of Avelumab maintenance, I mean, the trial obviously was until progression. Is that what people are doing in clinical practice? That's what I'm doing. Um, it is a little bit uh, of a practical problem because it's frequent visits to the, to the hospital. But um, people tolerate this uh, pretty well because they know it's um, um, it beneficial for, for their disease. And on the other hand, if, if we look at the median duration of velumab in this setting, it's not that long. Um, what I do after an exceptional uh, response to maintenance therapy, let's say a patient who is one year or one and a half year on velumab, yes, I guess that intuitively somebody starts thinking about ways of giving them an interval and feel more healthy. Mm-hmm. But certainly we don't have any data to do that at the moment. Okay. And in terms of adverse event management, what, what are the things that you find most challenging, if anything? I, th- I think that uh, immunotherapy uh, has been very well tolerated indeed. And uh, that's why everybody, physicians and patients, prefer that to chemotherapy. Specifically with available maintenance, I, I haven't seen major problems, and certainly I, I can't remember anybody stopping treatment because of adverse events. Okay, thank you. And then there obviously have been some developments uh, in terms of antibody drug conjugates, which of course we'll talk about in, in salvage therapy in a minute, but, but there are some quite interesting data, aren't there, about um, phase two data with uh, antibody drug conjugates and immunotherapy. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and where you kind of see that going, bearing in mind, you know, we have a standard of care that involves maintenance. Yeah, um, I know that people are very excited about this combination in form of a dotin plus pebrolizumab. I'm sure that other, one can think of other combinations. There are other antibody drug conjugates around and certainly there will be more. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think it, it has to be studied, certainly. It deserves further research. Um, if you ask me whether this uh, will change the current standard, which is chemotherapy followed by avalumab in the case of no progression, I don't know because, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult-to-beat standard because the, the results are, are very impressive. 
Um, and uh, Thomas and I were in Athens about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, and we were discussing about whether we are moving to, to a chemotherapy-free um, future. Um, and I was against it, but, and um, yes, I, I cannot foresee in the immediate future, uh, you know, um, this chemotherapy available maintenance completely out of the way. Uh, but we have to find uh, the best possible ways to incorporate all these improvements. Because what I would like to remind people who are listening to us or looking at us is that about 10 years ago, we only had chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And today we have so many effective options. So we need to, 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 to use them in the best possible way for our patients. So I don't think it's, it's, it's a question of one substituting the other, but putting them all together in the sequence of the natural history of this disease. And Rob, I'm, I'm quite excited about the combination of infortumab, dotin and pembrolizumab. Um, the data presented by Jonathan Rosenberg at ESMO showed you know, response rates of 65% mm. in a cisplatin ineligible population. Gem carbo tended to come in in my experience, somewhere between 40 45%. And so that does seem like a higher number to me. And the progression-free survival of 12 months in the OS of sort of 24 months in a previous cohort that was shown with 70% response rate, showing some consistency. And I think if you're consistently getting response rates above 60% and that durability associated with pembrolizumab, my feeling is that's probably gonna result in a positive randomized phase three study. And there is a study called EV302 which is EV and pembrolizumab versus Gemsys or Gemcarbo. Um, and um, my feeling that tr is that, that trial is going to be positive. And if that's the case, I think there is a chemotherapy-free future for us, perhaps not for all patients, as Ari said. Uh, and I think maintenance of Alimab may have a role to play for lots of different reasons. But I think the community is looking forward to having chemotherapy-free regimes in bladder cancer in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Exciting times. Well, thank you, Tom and Aris, for another great discussion. And thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for the last episode in this series as we discuss second-line and salvage treatments for metastatic urothelial cancer.